This is a download from wirelesstheatre.co.uk, recorded live at the Pleasance King Dome. Couples who change the world, Laura and Michael Dillon, a gentleman of my own making by Faye Hughes. Mr. Dillon? Mr. Michael Dillon? Miss Cowell. Roberta, please. Oh, welcome, Roberta. Do sit, please. I ordered tea, but there is coffee. Wine? Oh, tea would be lovely, thank you. Oh. Yes, with milk. Oh, you must forgive me rambling, I'm flustered. I have revealed so much in our correspondence, and yet this is the first time we're meeting. Yes, strange to see a new face on what feels like an old friend. I have a list of questions. Perhaps later? I noted some things in your book. Of course. Oh, thank you. It is so wonderful to feel amongst a kindred spirit at last. To think when I bought a copy of Self, or to think I would be sat opposite you now, taking tea. A joy, such a joy to meet with you at last. Your generosity throughout our correspondence has been a real tonic to me. Your honesty, oh well I must thank you. You have inspired me. You see, I have decided that I must go on. I must take the necessary steps. And I want to know everything, Mr. Dillon. Oh, Michael, please. Michael, I, I want to know everything I must expect. I'm ready at last. I want to prepare myself. I must. Tell me about Laura, about leaving Laura behind. One copes with the physical pain. Oh, I promise you, brave, darling girl, that you will find a way through that. The loss of family, of friends, and of history. I swear to you, Roberta, you never quite get past it. That is the biggest challenge. The recreation, putting your history aside, building a new life, a fictitious heritage, unscrambling your past and presenting it as a believable history for your future. I had to become a gentleman of my own making. Then Jessica stands back. And then you say, Beware, beware the Jabberwock, my son. The jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the Jubjub bird and shun the frumious snatch. <laughs> Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a tube. Oh, that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter. Laura? Laura Dillon! What have you done to that dress? Oh, how ever do those aunts cope of yours? Ah, Miss Dillon, two minutes to curtain up, please. The buckles, Michael, here. Shiny sailor buckles. Oh, you look much better as a tar. Shh, it's starting. <gasps> My hat. Ladies and gentlemen, Vicar, thank you for joining us for what promises to be a splendid evening's entertainment from the Folkestone Church Players and Mrs. Hampton's Girl Guides. <laughs> Well, I think it's important for a young lady to be equipped with these skills. I, I quite agree, and, and the performance was splendid. Indeed, you are to be congratulated, Toto. You must be very proud of Laura. A good, strong voice, if nothing in the way of elegance. <gasps> They're talking about you. Shh, let me listen. But she embodied the role of a tar, did she not? Oh, she appeared to be most taken with the uniform. Mrs. Hampton does her best. And for that, we are grateful. She is a difficult girl, to say the least. She shows 
little interest in such things. She is exceptionally bright. The other day, she spoke to me of the reading she's doing, of Tarzan, no less. How strange, but fitting. Alona, I often see her sat by the front, head in a book. Sat alone as if without a friend. Stupid duffer, I was there too. Shh. An interest in exploring will be of no use in securing a future husband. She's not a beautiful girl, but as Mrs. Hampton says, there are ways to dress a sow. Who said I want to be a beauty? Sow? <laughs> and that, I assume, will fall to me to manage. You manage admirably, Toto, with them both. A wonderful aunt and both Laura and her brother William are fortunate to have you, considering all they have been through. To lose one parent is deeply disturbing for a child, but both unfathomable. Those early years with just her father have taken their toll. Refinement and deportment must begin whilst girls are young. She arrived with me unable to brush her own hair and has shown little interest since. But she is a bright girl, studious almost, and could have a bright and promising future ahead of her. In this modern world, she must think of education before a husband, a university, travel. I feel sure she will go to university. The death of a father can cause great damage, I'm sure. I think of my own children and hope at least they will be spared this. It was not his absence that was damaging Roberta. Rather more his selective involvement, should we say, during his lifetime. I'm not sure Laura felt much the loss of her mother. She died in childbirth. Her father did more damage in his life than with his death. He showed little interest in the girl, but doted on William, her brother. They visited him in London, regularly at first, but whilst he would take Willie on trips to the zoo, to his club, he would leave Laura at his apartment with the housekeeper. In that empty, dismal bachelor's home with little to do and no one to talk to, she was quite alone. It was that neglect, his emotional absence in her lifetime, that did such damage. Her memories of him were scarce. Father with a hangover, father dressing for dinner, but little more. Very different for her brother, who would be taken to the club, or our driving in the motor car. Were you to meet the eighth Baron of Lismullen as he is now, Laura's elder brother, William, who would see little of the damage you would perhaps have seen in Laura, who is inconsolable at the loss of his beloved father, and with that cruel... Didn't you listen? Didn't you hear what they said at supper, stupid? Yes. Papa's gone. He's dead. First Mama, and then Papa. So now I'm stuck. No more visits to the city, lunches at his club. There'll be no one to take me to the races, and I'm left here in Folkestone with you and those stupid women. Races? He never took me to the races. Of course not, stupid. You're a girl, a useless girl. He didn't want you because of what you did. No, Willie, it's not true. Don't say it. It is true. He was happy with me and Mother and I, and then you came along, and you... I didn't. I didn't. You did. I didn't. You I didn't. killed I didn't. our mother! I didn't. I often feel the traumas we suffer force us to face the truth. That certainly has been the case for Captain Cowell and I. After the war, the crash, and time in Stalag Luft, we owe ourselves a fresh start, a hopeful future, a future as equals neither of us denied. In those darker, earlier years in Folkestone, were you with her? Were you with Laura? Oh, I was always there. See, the truth is that we did not realize that our situation was unique. At that age, we simply felt that our difficult relationship was something experienced by everyone, and yet something we knew to keep a secret. It was a constant challenge to her. I didn't wish to be. I often wished myself away for her. I was always there. In many ways, we were happy together in our confusion. She would have had us remain hidden together. Isolate. 
She would have denied me, Roberta. Ashamed, and you know the pain of that. Yes. I don't feel courageous, Michael. Rather terrified. But I simply cannot deny myself any longer, and holding on to Captain Cal for the sake of propriety seems impossible. Laura came to realize the same thing. She grew more and more uncomfortable as she grew into a beautiful young woman pursued by male admirers. I couldn't stand the physical changes. I couldn't remain silent. I encouraged her to fight the changes, to strap down her growing breasts and hide her new shape in masculine clothes. It was what I thought was best, but she grew more and more unhappy. Isolated by our differences and frustrated with my presence. We were at wars and stifled in that small town. It was only when confronted by the reality of herself, a simple gentlemanly act by a local boy when she was 15, that she realized she saw what he saw. He held open a gate for her to pass before him. So simple. He saw her as a girl, a girl alone. And down from there, See that red boat in the distance? That's father's. One of two. The fisher's out westbound today. Looks majestic out there. It handles well on the rough sea, so he says. There'll be a good haul today, I'm sure. We could go to the harbour, watch them come in. Come on. Find your step. Here. After you. A girl. He saw a girl alone, not the pair of us, Laura and Michael, inseparable in our being. One. Me. All I was remained invisible. Had I simply been some silly childhood imaginary friend, she could perhaps have coped, but it went deeper than that, as I'm sure you know. She realized the Michael in her head was in fact a part of her, a deeply hidden part. She railed at me. He saw some girl, some fragile girl. It's difficult for Laura. So much tragedy in her past and confusion in her present being. It was easier for a time, bearing it together, but she needed to go it alone. To be simply Laura, she denied me. I was always there, but she repressed every word I said. Every thought I had, she punished herself for. We were still one mind, but she would no longer acknowledge me. She continued to study. She saw no one. Only alone did she find the energy to keep up the pretense. She had few friends. When a child loses their mother and then is shunned by the father, I think they seek out a replacement. A father figure of sorts, someone to guide them, to direct, a moral compass. Laura needed to escape. Feels she must escape from Folkestone, but I'm sure she was running from herself. She needed guidance and support support a father would have given. In this case, the vicar was kind. Planted aspirations of Oxford. Laura Dillon's destined for Oxford. <clears throat> oh, neither of us quite knew what that meant for me as she boarded the train. tickets and books. You must telephone from the college halls on arrival and write once a week. And take the ladies' carriage, Laura, for goodness sake. Yes, Aunt Toto. I will see you at Christmas. Oh, I thought this was the ladies' carriage. Young man, you... It is. I'm... I'm Good morning, a... um, miss. Boyfriend's blazer, is it? All the rage, I suppose. Tickets, please. Yes, here. Ah, Oxford. Study, is it? One of the ladies' colleges. Yes, he's quite right. Oh, do excuse me. I thought with the cropped hair, the jacket, the young person's fashion, perhaps. Oh, do sit with me, dear. <laughs> Come, here with me. Sit up front or you'll be stuck with her all the way. I can't, Michael, no. Come on, just to see. It's the men's carriage, Laura. 
Just quickly, then. <gasps> oh. oh, breathe it in. Oh, cigar smoke. <laughs> Real cream. <laughs> oh, you've got to admit you feel better up here. Quick, quick, at that spare paper. Sit, Laura, read the paper. Breathe in the smoke. Look at the jackets and the hats. Oh, the way they hold themselves. This is where you should be. This is your new beginning, Laura. Oh, a new start. Oh, I crave that new beginning, Michael. The beginning of the change. It was the beginning of an acceptance. Perhaps the end of her ability to deny me, to keep me hidden. She sat in that carriage and I was more obvious to the world around than I had ever been before. The transition. Oh, the confusing transition. Constantly mistaken. Her cropped hair and blazers, she looked from the waist up like a young man. The dashing young man we longed to be, but below, the skirt betrayed us. She was Laura, longed to be Michael. I was there, but coexisting was difficult. Oxford, whilst a new start, brought with it constant male attention. Dance halls and parties. We couldn't fit in, Laura and I. One body, but two genders. Laura and Mike are encased in the same shell, battling. Oh, until we saw her, dashing across the courtyard one morning on the way to lectures. She seemed a young man, but did little to disguise the curves of her breasts under her waistcoat. She linked arms with a girl in a floral dress, with scarlet lipstick as they raced across the courtyard. Ladies, attention please, pipe down. Welcome, one and all, ladies of Sappho, to this equal space. Tonight we make plans for Emily Wilton's latest play, which we know will be winner. Darling Emily, we feel sure that each and every one of us in Britches will fall head over heels in love with you again <laughs> and ask you to treat us kindly. Then we must plan how to address the college's archaic bathroom rules and dining hall etiquette, which we are all agreed must be abolished. Here, here. Bring the bastards down. Thank you, Caroline. Ever the wallflower. But first, quiet please. First, we must welcome a new face joining us today. We spotted you in Freshers' Week with the Eton crop and blazer and knew your place was with us in this society. Ladies, I give you Miss Laura Dillon. <laughs> we welcome you with words from Radcliffe Hall so fitting that we have taken them as our motto. <coughs> You're neither unnatural, nor abominable, nor mad. You're as much a part of what people call nature as anyone else. Only you're unexplained as yet. You've not got your niche in creation. But someday that will come. And meanwhile, don't shrink from yourself, but face yourself calmly and bravely. Welcome, Laura. May you find in us friends, companions, and quite possibly lovers. <laughs> I should have been so happy, Roberta, there with them. Those women who looked so like me, but I couldn't. Oh, God knows I wanted to, to be part of that merry crowd, to enjoy the warmth of companionship amongst them. And they welcomed me so. Some desired me. I was won over for a while, was courting, and I enjoyed the pleasure of time with these women, the romantic gesture. But I realized each and every time I grew closer that the thing they desired about me, my woman's body, this inconvenient shell was the thing I hated the most. The thing I felt was wrong, did not fit, didn't identify as they did. They saw Laura, not Michael. 
He saw a woman with the instinct to dress in men's clothing and to love other women. This is when I realized that Laura and I must separate. It could not be one. Yet you enjoyed Oxford. Your book paints this as a happier time. Oh, that, my dear Roberta, was due in no small part to the rowing club. I fit in there. I found a home with this skill I possessed on the river. Femininity hidden in the uniform which, thanks to my campaigning, was developed to shorts and blazers. And then I found Griffin. Two point four, way enough. Good work, ladies. Griffin, excellent. Good strides, everyone. All right. Okay, let's bring her in. Shoulders, ready, whoop. <sighs> Strong run today, Coxwain. Aye, was. Good waters. The new girl really packs a punch. Have you met Elizabeth Griffin? Someone tells me you two would get along. Oh. Griffin! Yes, Cox? Want you to meet the main team captain. Just show you around. Griffin? Elizabeth Violet Griffin. I didn't ever really fit. Griffin or Griff to my friends. You? Laura Maud Dillon. A Laura. You are kidding me. You go by Laura? I... yes. Sorry, I just thought with the cropped hair and blazer, I thought maybe you were a bit like me? A chap? A lad of sorts? I think I am. Then we'll need to find you a better name. No man that smoked a pipe was ever called Laura. Hmm. I guess not. Do you smoke a pipe? I do. I make a point of it, although it took me some getting used to. It's the freedom of Oxford, Laura. My reason for agreeing to study. I escaped from my family, my dreaded betrothed. They wanted me to have an education, and that is what I have given myself. I study during the day, and at the evening, I educate myself in being the man I wish to be. At the end of the day, I take myself home to my digs, light up a pipe, and pour myself a whiskey, and listen to opping holidays and other people's houses on the wireless. You should join me sometime. I think we have much to discuss. My first real friendship as myself, as Michael. Oh, Griffin insisted I select a new name and then mocked me for picking my father's. Days were spent in study, dodging the questions and stares of strangers as a half-sex, half-man and half-woman. But in the evenings, I would sit with Griffin in his lodgings or mine and smoke a pipe, discuss politics and the nature of our condition. His friendship meant so much. It opened my eyes to the world. Oh. She leant in after the kiss, moved her arms around and began to unbutton my shirt. I mean my shirt. Oh, she snuggled her head into my chest, but... Oh. Go on. She began caressing me, cupping my breasts. I froze. Horrible. I froze, and she continued, aroused. For her, it seemed a great pleasure to be close to me as a woman, but it felt unnatural, wrong. Quite wrong. At home, I'd cottoned with a girl in the village. She knew I was engaged to Thomas and knew my peculiarities. She was kind, loving almost. She liked me for what I am. She'd rob her brother's clothes and dress me as a boy. We'd take whole days out walking. Me as a lad. Her lad. She flirted. She kissed me and encouraged me to pleasure her. I thought she understood. Then one day, she tried to touch me. My woman's part. I got sick. I was sick, Michael, repulsed by it. I could not bear it. Since that day, I have never done more than just to take a young woman to dinner, to dance. More than a kiss leads to trouble. Those that know you are a woman are never compatible. Their homosexual desires will not fulfill you, only remind you that you aren't what you wish to be. Those who believe you are a man can never draw close. I would never forgive myself to be such a disappointment. I would never lead a woman on. I could never father her children and never offer a respectable marriage. So what do we do? Where do we go for comfort, passion? For acceptance. 
I do not know. But should I find that place, Griffin, I will be sure to take you there. And we would raise merry hell, dashing Oxford grads with our strong rowers' arms, our charm, our intellect. Oh, the toast of the town! Yes. And until then, let us toast each other. Let's toast companionship. Brothers! And he was a brother to me, a true companion. That sense of isolation decreased. This wasn't just me. And if I could find understanding in Griffin, it must lie elsewhere. If he could understand, understand at such a deep level, then perhaps others could also. Oh, that is just how I felt when reading your book, Michael. My desire, my drive to live this way, affirmed by your own experience. I read those pages, and whilst discreet, I felt sure you knew of this personally, not just from the medical perspective. And when your letters confirmed this, my heart soared. I cannot tell you the joy, the comfort. I'm so glad to have brought you that comfort, Roberta. I do truly understand, and I shall be a good friend to you, I promise. I will cherish that. My friendship with Griffin was short-lived. I fear that I did more harm than good for Griffin. It was at this time that I came close to my lowest ebb. Do please go on, Michael. My brother's baronessy was at last confirmed, and with it the interest in the family increased. The press began to research us, presumably hoping for pictures of the young unmarried Miss Laura Dillon. They were disappointed not to find a young debutante, and instead, photographing me by the boathouse, they ran an article entitled, Miss Dillon, Man or Woman. Good Lord, Michael, no. Griffin's parents were appalled and sent for her to return home. This confirmed their suspicion about the life she was living, the unsuitable life that they felt would bring shame upon their family. They took her home to bring forward the marriage to a suitor they promised her to before she left. There was a note, but nothing more. A forwarding address. I found it, but I did not want to cause further hardship. I was broken. My family, the aunts, wrote and asked me not to return to Folkestone. I was a disgrace to them. My brother severed all ties. I did not see him for years afterwards and then severed ties for good and stated he would deny I was living if asked. I was alone again. Social outcast. Freak. Walked home from lectures, past the rooms that Griffin had kept, which now stood empty. Stopped in the pub, but did not brave the gentleman's bar as I had done before. And quickly, no pleasure, only hoping to block out the pain. I left before closing, head down, belly full of anger and ale, bound for an empty home and to cry myself to sleep. I'm unsure as to quite how it happened, but a group of lads started on me. I threw a punch and found myself on the floor whilst they made blows to my stomach. I woke up in a stranger's bed with a vinegar parcel upon my head and a family I didn't know staring at me. Is he, she all right, do you think? Taking a lick in, boy. Tom and I saw them off. He's in for a cracking headache. They're shiner, boy. He'll be all right. Is he, she, is it a boy or a girl, Bill? She's in petticoats, but with that crop and the blazer. What's it matter? Only ways to ask. Matey, you all right? It's all right. I'm Bill. This is Annie. You're safe here, mate. Took a lick in. You'll be just fine. What's your name? Michael. <sighs> Bill. Bill was like an older brother to me. It sneaked me into men's clubs and boxing. He believed that people made their own fortune and chose their own path. I'd call each evening, bring them something for supper. They struggled for money and I for friendship. Oh, but sit up half the night talking. Annie tailored Bill's old dress pants to suit me and we'd sing songs she had heard her mother sing. The old musical songs where the girls dressed in spats. Oh, Bill was a hard, tough man. But even he softened to our silliness eventually and sat in his chair and called himself our audience, applauding at times and booing and heckling at others. 
She looked at the jury with a shy, loving glance, then mailed at the counselor below. Then turning her sweet, pretty eyes to the judge, she tenderly murmured, hello. <laughs> the judge, he winked to the counsellor, the counsellor winked to the clerk. The jury passed the wink along and murmured, there's a lark. The usher winked to the copper, the copper left his seat. And going to the window, winked at somebody on the street. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> what I say? Tough, tough old chap, bravo. <laughs> Handsome chap and the girls are looking. Oi! I'm a respectable married woman. Says who? Says I, and I will joust. I will joust with any man who says otherwise. Joust? Where did you get that one from? I've no idea. Oh, I'd love to take you on, Sully, but I can't seem to find my horse. Or my armour, come think of it. Oh, you boys, I'm off to bed. I will leave you to your brandy. See him safe home, Bill. And thank you for the violets, Michael. Mm. So pretty. Showing me up, you are. <laughs> he could teach you a thing or two about being a gentleman, that's for sure. <laughs> they had their own struggles, Annie and Bill. Their story is hardly straightforward. But you would never know such a kind-hearted and loving couple. Their acceptance, reassurance, gave me confidence to accept a new job in a laboratory when I finished my studies. And then they saw me off as I joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Bill was posted away and Annie made plans to go into service herself. She confided in me as we packed up the house that Bill had had a little brother. They'd lost contact following a quarrel many years before. The brother was homosexual, I believe, and Bill couldn't accept it. I think in helping me, he was trying to make amends. Their understanding blinded me for a while, and I perhaps thought the world a kinder place than it is. In the Air Force, I found myself once again an outcast. The forces are not a place for people like us, Michael. Goodness, no. I feel my time in the military did nothing but harden my hatred for my true self. I hid every thought, monitored myself constantly. Oh, I was happy running the dispatches, but was soon informed I was too masculine to sleep in the women's dorm. Of course they would not have me in a male regiment either, and so I ran. Began working in a local garage and saw the war out there. In overalls filling cars, customers barely glanced, and I was often called son or lad by those using the garage. The owner knew. He'd seen my papers, but with the men at war, he needed someone to do the work, and I was capable. Kept myself to myself. Laura long gone by now. When with Griffin, and Bill and Annie, I hadn't needed Laura as a mask for others' approval. I had been Michael, and Michael alone. I missed her sometimes, but felt we had been apart too long to ever come back. During those long nights in the garage, I slept in the attic as fire marshal, listening to bombs drop around me, and I read paper after paper on this condition that was tearing apart my life. I felt if I could find the solution, I could contact Griffin and perhaps but right some of the wrong I had caused. And this is where you found Dr. Foss? I did. There was little in the way of research being done at this stage, but I stumbled across some papers in the local university library. Dr. Foss had passed comments about the side effects on the body from hormonal supplements. He seemed to be implying they could, as a side effect, alter gender. Before I knew it, I had taken myself to Bristol and was sat opposite him in his surgery. Uh, lift your arm. Thank you. You may dress. Miss Dillon, physically, you present as a fit and healthy young woman, with little to suggest you are, as we would say, intersex. Yet it is obvious from your mannerisms, clothing, and temperament, uh, you are conflicted in some way. The results of the questions you answered for my colleague during the psychiatrist's assessment show a definite leaning to the masculine. You say you feel as though that is correct as though the body does not somehow belong. Yes. Yes, I always have. I've never considered myself quite female and never been comfortable in women's clothing. I feel my being is repellent, quite wrong. I cannot bring myself to look at it with anything other than contempt, as though the frame I am housed in is the imposter. I have no desire for children. I'm repulsed by my own menstruation. It feels unnatural, Doctor. Quite unnatural to me. I'm caged in my own being. 
Only in dressing this way do I feel some relief, some sense of belonging. It's as if some balance is restored. Dr. Foss, I wonder if by some curious biological accident one could have been born into the wrong body, an incorrect shell. There is nothing in the way of research that confirms or denies this. Uh, I have never met with anyone who speaks with such certainty that they are of the intersex when displaying no physical signs. My own work simply finds that an excess in the masculine hormones can result in a shifting in the body's functions, bringing it in line with the masculine. Women with an excess of testosterone can be found to sprout hair on the face or chest, cease menstruation, breasts may wither, and the voice lowers. So, uh, you are saying that with someone in my position to take supplements of those hormones, they could affect such change on the body that they would begin to change sex? This is an area into which no one has studied, Miss Dillon. My own experiments have not provided the opportunity to study a test case long enough to observe it. It could have such a drastic and dangerous impact on the test case that it poses many, many risks. In all cases where hormonal supplements have had this impact and these side effects and symptoms are reported, we have ceased treatment immediately. Yes, but if you had been able to go on, you believe you could begin to change someone's gender, my gender, Dr. Foss? I suspect that I could, yes. Oh. But the risks involved would be enormous, Miss Dillon. Yes, the risks I would be willing to take. Dr. Foss, I am a willing participant in your experiment. I can assure you, I understand all involved. These side effects that would distress most women are the change I seek to feel whole. Your experiment would produce such life-altering effects in me, I am willing to take any associated risks. <sighs> take some time. Hmm? Meet again with the infirmary psychiatrist, and should he feel you understand the consequences of this action, come back to me and we will begin <sighs> treatment. The elation, Roberta. I was lifted, transformed. I met with the psychiatrist and answered endless questions about my childhood. My thoughts and feelings about my body, the trials of my half-life. I felt exposed, vulnerable in my honesty as I revealed my life to him. But each answer was a step closer to beginning the life I needed. A life where no one would question that I was Michael Dillon, where no traces of Laura would be seen. I sat through session after session until the assessment was complete and the report produced for Dr. Foss. When I returned to his offices just a few weeks later, he was nervous, agitated at my mere presence. We cannot go ahead. Simply not possible, I'm afraid. I apologize for misleading you, Mr. Lynn. I don't understand, Dr. Foss. You felt it would be simple. You promised that if I had the assessment, we could begin. I did that. I endured the questions, the probing, the examinations. You gave me such hope. I would almost certainly be ruined. There have been threats, threats from fellow doctors at the infirmary. The psychiatric board acknowledge your position, but question my ethics. They dispute the social moral good in such an experiment. They suggest I intend to play God in altering a fit and healthy young woman. I am not a fit young woman. I am half-sex, intersex Dr. Foss. If not physically, then mentally. This you can surely see. On examination, Miss Dillon, we can find nothing wrong with you. You are a fit young woman. You have no disfiguration, your genitals are undisputably female, and no medical doctor will find cause to treat you as intersex. This is the end of this. If you were to prove the benefits to my health, to my life. As I have said, Miss Dillon, <laughs> there is nothing I can do. You must leave. I have other patients to see. There must be something. Reconsider. That is all I'm asking. Take these. Take the damn pills with you. Please do not come here again. Do as you will, but keep away. Dear God, he gave you the pills. He practically threw the damn things at me. He was in such a hurry to get me out of the office. I stuffed them in my bag and ran out of there, trying to hold my temper with tears running down my cheeks. I didn't know what I had, Roberta. A 
power of that little bottle of pills. He had no idea of just how simple the solution was. We drank near on a bottle of whiskey that night and woke with a raging head. Popped an aspirin to dull the thud and it occurred to me that I might just easily take one of the small pills from the bottle of Dr. Foss. I washed it down with little thought and then, that evening I took another. I repeated day after day and waited for changes. They came quickly. Yes, so very quickly. My feminine side, always there, blossomed in front of my eyes. I was surprised at how quickly the captain melted away. My face softened, and I saw Roberta, my face. Your beautiful face, as it should be now. Yes. And you, the transformation. My breasts appeared to recede. I sprouted hair upon my chin, and my voice in pitch it lowered. By the simple action of taking that pill, I was making myself a man. I was Michael, and was finally leaving Laura behind. You know, I heard her again at that time. Such a time apart. Her words were my words. I heard her, admiring our new features. As I grew more comfortable, she grew kinder. We're not at war anymore, a force to live apart. Her angry voice, distant silence, was no more. The aunts would not have recognized me. Laura was vanishing before my eyes. Bill and Annie would have thought me my own brother. But for the very first time, my reflection felt familiar. I no longer saw a stranger but the face I'd felt I should have. I was barely recognizable as a female, and that is how I ended up in the men's ward of the local hospital. Change Mr. Winston's dressing, Sister James. Dr. Cordwell is due for rounds. Oh, hello. Uh, where, where am I? Oh, hello, young man. You are back with us, then. You're at Brackwood Military Hospital. You collapsed on the high street, remember? Nasty bump to the head. Low blood sugar, Dr. Caldwell believes. He is just coming shortly. Don't you worry. Ah, Master Dillon. How are you feeling? I am... Um, I, I oughtn't be in here. Shh, shh, shh. Uh, I think Master Dillon is ready for the cup of tea, nurse. Could you fetch that while I speak to him? Two sugars, I recommend. I examined you on arrival. Laura. Laura Dillon. Saw your ID. There's no need to fret. My discretion's guaranteed. The bump to the head will soon mend and the blood sugar is treatable. However, your position must be exceptionally vulnerable, presenting as a man when clothed and yet clearly a woman. If you are intending to remain as this, there are things that can be done. It's fortunate you ended up here. We have the best surgeons working with the war-wounded. They can sculpt the body, put it right, as it were. Removal of the excess flesh to the breast, it's a simple procedure, and one, should you wish, we can carry out here. Is it something you'd like to consider? Yes. Didn't know such things were possible. There have been great advances in what is possible. The horrors of war have brought with them great medical advances, and I like to think moral advances also. No man nor woman should feel trapped in their own being. Judging by your beard, you have been altering your own being for some time. The mastectomy will be a natural progression to the work you have begun. Then I recommend you see Dr. Gillies as soon as you are able. He has been a pioneer in the field of reconstructive surgery with sympathies for those who are suffering gender indiscretions. He may be in a position to help you further. Really? There could be more. I never underestimate the inventiveness of Dr. Harold Gillies. We'll do what we can for you. And I can provide you with papers to get that ID changed. To what? Mail! Can't live as a man betrayed by your identification, Mr. Dillon. Physician's note stating you are intersex and declaring you male should suffice. You simply take it to the registry office and they will make the official changes. I take it from the tie you are a former Oxford scholar? You need to ask them to change their records also. You can't be a chap from a woman's college, can you? No, I don't suppose I can. 
And there it began. The first of many surgeries, permanent changes. Laura cut away from my body. Oh, the relief with the removal of my shrinking, withered breasts. Be bandaging my wounds rather than strapping down a false part of me. I took my papers to the registry office, as Caldwell suggested, braced for a fuss, the embarrassment. I rehearsed my request repeatedly in front of the mirror, staring at my changed face and flat chest. On arrival, I handed the note from the doctor and my papers to the lady at the counter. She didn't flinch, barely blinked. She filled out a form, stamped it, had me sign it, and then sent me out. That was all. I was ready to see Gillies. The letter arrived, the appointment. I boarded the train. Now there was no mistaking which carriage I should be in. Your ticket, sir. Thank you. Ah, oh, Rookstown. Visiting the hospital, are you? Yes, that's correct. Meeting with Dr. Gillies. Some research I'm doing. Right you are. Short platform at Rookstown, so head down to carriage B on arrival and alight there. He's a genius. Gillies. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, if you want an opinion for your research. Genius. Artist. Well, sure to you I still look a fright. <laughs> Scarred, battered, but... Oh, compared to earlier this year... You were a patient. I was. Returned from battle with half my neck blown open. <laughs> ear hanging down here by my shoulder, it was. My own mother didn't recognise me, but he, well... He's, he just saw me as a puzzle, you know. Pieces to be put back together again. Challenge, he said, yeah. Well, not insurmountable. He performed the surgery himself? Four so far. Just one more to go in the autumn. I'm recognisable now as a man injured in the war, but, well, for me, that's the truth. But to be recognisable as a man, not a destroyed mass of flesh, well, that's a miracle to me. A miracle indeed. Coming back to tell him I'm going to be married. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Me lass and I, just, just possible down to him. She can love me, find me desirable after all this. She doesn't turn her face from me in horror. It's all gillies. When you go to meet him, Roberta, prepare yourself for a humbling experience. The courtyard of his hospital was filled with wounded soldiers, faces disfigured and scarred by the trials of war. Burnt, charred faces, amputees, blind, deaf, and crippled in the line of duty. The spoils of war are nothing new to me. In my life as Captain Cowell, I saw more horror than you can imagine. The camps, the torture. It is Gilly's work I'm keen to see. How he mends what is broken. The new surgeries. Well, amongst Dr. Gilly's pioneering techniques is the growth of new skin for the patient's surgery. It involves the growth of excess in tubes from the back, the neck, or sometimes the buttocks. So these wounded soldiers play chess and drink tea with additional flesh hanging off them and bandages covering the reason for their treatment. They smile. It's a place of great pain and great hope. A place where to be different, to inhabit a flawed shell confusing to others is the norm and the hope of a second chance. A chance to blend in lifts spirits. And Gillies himself? His letters are kind but formal. Dr. Gillies is a quiet, unassuming man, the giver of great gifts, a true gentleman, who is kind, professional, and kept his distance. He explained that he had previously reconstructed penises for injured soldiers and performed surgery on those with ambiguous genitalia. He was willing to perform a phalloplasty, but must officially diagnose me with acute hypospadias in order to conceal the fact that he intended to reassign my gender. He understood immediately the need for my surgery, but was clear that those carrying injuries must come first and agreed to schedule my surgery when the war was over. I could not walk out of that place. A place of such promise. I was certain that if I boarded the train home, I would find this all some great dream or return to find it a false promise, as with Dr. Foss. What could I do in the years I would wait? 
use the funds I had inherited from my father and the money my brother paid me to keep hidden. And with my new ID, registered my intent to train as a doctor in a hospital close by. Trainee doctor during term time and patient in the holidays. Thirteen long operations, but despite the pain, I felt happier and stronger than ever before. I learned as much in my training about surgery as under his knife. He helped craft and sculpt my body whilst the education developed my mind. The first man created at the hands of a surgeon, Michael. Yes. Yes. I was the first man made through surgery and not nature. He built my body. I suffered the pain willingly. I built my new life, my new history. I changed my name, my birth certificate. I left my family behind. I left Folkestone. My history at Oxford changed to hide the women's college and ladies' rowing team. I left my childhood as that little girl, troubled young woman. I left Laura behind. I am a gentleman of my own making. been listening to A Gentleman of My Own Making by Faye Hughes with Adam Hall, Aisha Osborne, James Parks, Morag Sims and Nina Milnes with Jackie Fong on keys. Your sound team were Malcolm Thorpe and Gareth Brown, produced by Marielle Runacre-Temple, Emily Best and George Maddox and directed by David Beck. Visit wirelesstheatre.co.uk to download this and hundreds of other award-winning radio plays. <laughs>